we will be focusing on Ephesians chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there, you can follow along as we go. In this chapter, Paul prays, thanking God for God's sovereignty. And although you won't find the word sovereignty in the text today, uh, God's sovereignty is one of the key facets of God's character that we find all throughout Scripture. And it is is a term that we have chosen to use to describe uh, a large and complex and many-faceted aspect of God's character. Uh, Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 are some of the key texts in Scripture that teach us about sovereignty and specifically what it means for God to save us through his own election and calling and not through our own works. So when we refer to the word sovereignty or providence, we mean that God, being all-powerful and above all other things, he has both the power and the will to do whatever he pleases. He can create and destroy. He can judge and forgive. He is not constrained by any natural law or outside force or higher power. He is not hindered by time, by physics, by philosophical quandaries, or by any other moral standard. And that definition, of course, naturally raises intellectual and philosophical questions in our minds. If God controls everything, do we have free will? How are we responsible for our actions if God chooses for everything to happen that happens? And if God literally causes everything to happen, does that mean even bad things? And most directly germane to our series that we're working through right now, what does it mean for us to pray to God if he has already ordained everything that will come to pass? But I will not attempt to answer these philosophical questions. Uh, They are interesting, and I would love to talk to you about them, and we can discuss the many ways that theologians and philosophers throughout all of human history really have tried to wrestle with this question. But... But the Bible doesn't actually do much to address these paradoxes. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over all things. The Bible also clearly teaches that we are responsible for our actions. And the Bible clearly teaches that prayer matters and works. And so we will trust those things to be true. And instead, we will let this passage and let Paul, the author of this passage, try to communicate to us how we should feel about God's sovereignty. What God's sovereignty should mean to us. Not not how we wrestle with it in our minds, but rather how we come to love and enjoy it in our hearts. So let's turn to the text at hand. I'm going to read the entire first chapter. The primary focus will be verses 15 through 23. Here's the word of our Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, 
Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so remembering that we are searching this chapter for insights regarding prayer, verse 15 then is significant. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God, a prayer of praise. And for what reason? The surrounding verses, of course, give us the answer. He is thanking God first for God's work in saving the saints in Ephesus. And then he goes on to thank God for more of his work, his granting of wisdom and of revelation, his enlightening of your hearts to hope, and his incredible displays of power. So today we are going to pray and thank God for his sovereignty in our salvation, in giving us wisdom and knowledge, in enlightening our hearts to hope, and in demonstrating his power. First, God's sovereignty and salvation. Returning to the first half of Ephesians 1, in particular verses 3 through 10. And this passage, although not dense, contains every element of the gospel, and each element is shown to be a work of God's sovereignty. First, in verse 4, we see that God shows us before the foundation of the world. And it's important to remember that God's redemptive plan, it is not plan B. For Jesus to come to earth and live a sinless life, and die an unfair death, and be returned to life, and seated in heaven, is God's plan from the beginning. He did not have to scramble to come up with an alternative solution when Adam and Eve first sinned, or when you do every day. And his sovereignty is not threatened by you going off plan. Continuing in verse 4, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. This is the crux of the necessity of the gospel. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign over all things. He does whatever he wants, and he is holy. Holy means that God is perfect. He is absolutely moral. What he does and what he says becomes what is right and true. He is holy. But we, of course, by our nature, are not holy. We are born in sin, and we choose sin. If God is holy and we are not, that is the core problem of the human existence. He calls us to him and we cannot enter his presence because he is holy and we are not. None can stand to his judgment. And yet through the gospel, God makes us holy and blameless. Not merely overlooking our sin, but in fact changing our nature from a nature of sin to a nature of holiness so that we can completely and justifiably be in his presence. Furthermore, verse 5, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons. Just as God had a plan for your salvation, 
If you are predestined as his child, he has a plan for your adoption. As much as we can imagine how precious it is to say to an adopted child, son, daughter, I chose to love you. You're my child because I wanted you to be my child. How much more beautiful that God says to us, I have always wanted you to be my child. Before you even had the chance to earn my favor, not that you could, I gave it to you anyway. And continuing into verse 6, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise God that he saves us for his own glory. Because God's glory is unassailable. There is nothing that could momentarily or in the tiniest way diminish his glory. And so he saves us for his glory, assuring us that nothing could ever possibly change that. Our salvation is caused by him and it is for him. Unshakable and unchangeable. And in verse 7, this redemption, the mechanism by which we are saved, it is through his own blood, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Redemption, here meaning it's kind of a technical word, something along the lines of bought and paid for. We have the receipt in the blood, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only does God promise these things, we have the evidence, we have the proof, we have the physical wounds in Jesus' hands and feet that show us, yes, this has been done. And so to finish with verses 8 through 10, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so not only has God done all of this for us, not only has God always planned to do all of this for us, he has made it known to us. He has shown us what he has done. No longer like the patriarchs of old or the Israelites in the historical books, nor the prophets, nor even Jesus' own disciples are we waiting to see what God will do. He has done it and shown us. Let us pause now for a few minutes to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for God's sovereignty in saving us. This is from Jonah chapter 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Seaweeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. And so now, having established a firm foundation in the gospel and in God's sovereignty over the gospel, 
Let us now see for what reason Paul prays. Beginning in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We are not simply given wisdom and revelation and knowledge, but see that in fact we are given the spirit of wisdom, a much more sure thing, even than the wisdom of our earthly fathers. With all due respect to my father, who actually surprised me by joining us today right there. (laughs) With all due respect to my father and yours, and they are due respect, they have occasionally taught us wrong in their wisdom. And yet we desire it anyway, of course. But this gift from God is not an ephemeral moment of teaching. It's not a proverb or a saying or a training class or a conversation about how the world works. It is, in fact, God himself, a person, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within us, giving you an unending fountain of wisdom over and over again. And not only giving you wisdom, but in fact, changing your heart to be wise. Not merely advice, but your affections being altered over time in sanctification to become wise. And of course we know from the previous passage that we just read that without this indwelling spirit of wisdom, we could not have even begun to understand God's revelation about himself and about the gospel, let alone any of the other marvelous truths that God wants us to know about him from scripture and from our world. After all, from 1 Corinthians, we know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Keeping this in mind provides a valuable guardrail or maybe even corrective when we pray for wisdom. Prayers for wisdom are a common prayer. We pray, God, what do I do in this situation? How do I handle this problem? I I don't know what to do next. First, it is useful to remember that when we are doubtful or when we are dealing with someone who is doubtful or skeptical or even hostile to Christ, that the spirit of wisdom is the only source of wisdom that we have. Right now, I feel like Christianity makes perfect sense. It's consistent, it answers my questions, it describes the world accurately, it explains the problems that humans all seem to have, and it has a solution for them. It makes sense to me. And so it's tempting for me to think then that I've decided in my informed opinion with sufficient evidence to wisely choose Christianity. That would be both arrogant and incorrect, and it would be a fool's errand to try to convince someone else to come down that same path with you. In fact, we know that God, having chosen me, has granted me the spirit of wisdom, which allows me to understand his revelation. And his revelation, which is also from God, then gives me the knowledge of him. His wisdom allows me to read his word, which gives me the knowledge I need to respond to the gospel. But every step of the way, God is the actor. He gives me the spirit of wisdom. He provides the revelation that I need and thereby grants me the knowledge. And second, it is valuable when we are praying for wisdom, especially in circumstances such as God helped me to make this decision, to remember that we are already indwelt with the spirit of wisdom. We are not asking for God to begin granting us wisdom today. We are not asking for God to send a messenger from the heavens or a bolt of lightning to answer our question. But we 
in fact, already have God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom in us. And on top of that, we have revelation, which we call the Bible, the word of God, from which we can inquire on any number of topics and questions. So let us not wait God out for his answer to a given question when we have already been given what God believes to be sufficient. He has given you the spirit of wisdom and he has given you his revelation and he tells you that that is enough. Let us trust him and remember that the spirit of wisdom in us is the ultimate source of wisdom. We are not waiting for wisdom. Let us now take a moment and pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his wisdom and revelation from Daniel chapter two. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. Now, continuing in our passage in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Consider the way that you use hope in everyday English. I hope I pass this test. I hope she says yes. I hope it doesn't rain today. But this is clearly not how this passage is using the word hope. Hope is obviously something that is one, known, and two, anchored in a future reality. Hope here is not a word of statistics or probability or gambling, but of assurance. We have been called to a hope that is not likely, that is not probable. We're not calling for a hope that we hope comes true, but rather we have been called to a hope that is preordained by a sovereign God who cannot fail at his purposes. It is known to God, this hope, and therefore it is known to us because he opened the eyes of our hearts to see it. And so then what exactly is this hope that we have? This hope is the riches of his glorious inheritance. Inheritance is such an important word in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, in God's communication with the, the patriarchs and the Israelites. He, he is going to grant them an inheritance. He's going to grant them sons and a people and a land and a kingdom and a savior. They are inheritors of these things. And we know that God always comes through for his people. But now to us, he has promised so much more. See back up in verses 5 and 11 earlier in this chapter, we have obtained an inheritance of salvation and of sonship. How much greater an inheritance than land? Most of us, if we have living parents, we are probably under the assumption that we will receive an inheritance. Whether or not you've thought much about it explicitly, I'm sure the idea is in the back of your mind there somewhere. You know, maybe you wonder, you know, how much is it going to be? And maybe you try to guess. You know, you look at your parents' lifestyle, and and who knows, right? Or how will it be divided up? You know, is that is the black sheep going to get anything? <laughs> and these questions they concern us because our inheritance is finite. None of our parents have so much 
that it could be divided any number of ways and not matter. It has limits. But God's inheritance is greater. Like our parents, we can only guess as to how great the riches are that he will grant to us. But unlike our parents, we know that his riches are so vast and innumerable that even split a trillion ways, we would never come close to the end of it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His city in heaven will be built of solid gold with walls of gemstones and 12 gates, each made of a single pearl. He is rich beyond the wildest fathoming of the richest man that has ever lived. But let's not put too fine a point on God's net worth. He is also rich in mercy and wisdom. He bears the highest authority. He's the king of all kings and the creator sovereign over everything. And this is the inheritance into which he has adopted you. You will receive crowns in heaven. You will sit at the king's table as his child. And it is this inheritance that is our hope. We don't hope for good things to happen. We have hope because this good and great and marvelous inheritance is already bought and paid for. And so when we pray, when we pray in suffering, when we pray in loss, and when we pray for things that we desperately desire, but things that do not come to pass, Nonetheless, we have hope because God is sovereign over our lives, over the end of our lives, and over the things to come. And no matter what comes to pass, at the end of this age, you are guaranteed an inheritance greater than anything else that you have asked for in this life. And so we pray in light of this, trusting that God is working us towards his inheritance in him. We pray with certain hope because God's inheritance is unshakable. Let us pray, worshiping God for his steadfastness, which gives us hope. This is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. And we now arrive at the final verses in chapter 1, 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is difficult to convey the appropriate level of passion in this scripture. Each phrase is more elevated than the last. The energy is tangible, and rightly so. To even attempt to describe God's power is to flirt with heresy, because human words are so insufficient to describe his unimaginably great nature. And so Paul wisely, and we follow his example, he does not attempt to inventory or categorize God's power. He does not attempt to assign a level to it or to name which of God's mighty works is greater than the others. He merely starts a list of God's mighty deeds and a list that quickly overwhelms him with emotion and glory, for it is immeasurably great. First, see that God's great might is worked out when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. If there is one thing about this world that is assured to us as mankind, it is that no one lives forever. No matter my fitness or wealth or which first world country I was lucky to be born into, no matter what religion or diet or doctor or sheer force of will I possess, death will come for me one day. That is the great final certainty of this earth. Everything dies. And yet God is not constrained by this. He is not cowed by death. He is not impressed by the power that death has over us. So great is he that he can not only prevent it, but reverse it. He is not even for a moment insecure. He is so certain of his power over death that he sends his son into death knowing that he will raise him again. At no point in God's purpose was there any risk or hesitation involved. His power over death is absolute. This is true power. And not only does he raise Jesus and thereby us from the dead, he then sits Christ at his own right hand, the place of highest honor at the table, demonstrating that God not only has immeasurable power, power even over death, but he has the power to grant power. This simple declaration of seating arrangements confers onto Christ absolute rule by merely resting at the right hand of God. Christ is over all things. He has absolute rule, authority, power, and dominion. There is no man, no force, no nation on earth so great and mighty that is not crushed under the iron rod of King Jesus at the right hand of God. And his power is not only absolute, but eternal. There is no expiration date. He will not pass away, leaving a, a successor crisis or a power vacuum. As surely as he is enthroned today, he will be tomorrow and for every day to come. Those who now buck against his yoke, they cannot wait him out. And for those of us who embrace his rule, we will never have need to reminisce about the good old days. They go on forever. And lastly, God has the power to be gloriously generous. After creating all things to his glory, after giving up his son, after raising him from the dead, after seating him over all things forever and ever, God, who has everything, is so unthreatened, so complete in his power, that he can freely and graciously 
give Jesus to the church for our good to be our head? Have you ever experienced the desire to just be so rich that you could just spend, burn, give away any amount of money and just and not even have it matter? You know, I drop a penny on the ground, but I'm not worried about it. just give it away. Don't even think about it. How much money would you need to have to just give away millions of dollars and not even think about it? How much power must God have? How much greatness must God have? How much glory must God have to just as a gift give his son to every one of us? Other gods throughout the years, they have promised Everything under the sun. Crops, children, happiness, victory, peace, status. Satan himself promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if he would bow down. But these promises, they're not credible. I mean, I think everyone here knows that if I offered you a million dollar loan, that's not, that's not a credible offer. Because, you know, I don't seem like the kind of person that has a million dollars laying around with nothing to do with it. And these, these other gods, these idols that we follow, they offer us things. But their power is not, it's not credible. And so their promises are not credible. And this is why God's power is so important and so glorious. His power is what secures all of his other promises. He promises salvation. He promises wisdom. He promises revelation. He promises hope. And all of those things would be nothing if he didn't seem like the kind of God that would come through. If you weren't sure that he had the resources to back up his claims, and yet his power is so overwhelmingly great, so unquestionably absolute that there is no doubt left that he can and will secure every promise he has made to us. All of these promises are anchored by God's power. And so as we pray, I think, to the letter written by James, when he reminds us, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There's no power on heaven or on earth that can promise everything and mean it, except God. Many of us have made marriage vows. All of us have broken them. Your insurance company promises to make you whole, but the day your house burns down, they go out of business. The government promises to keep you safe with its powerful armies, but the terrorists are in the skies. Satan promises that he will make you happy, but the second you die, he can't do a single thing for you. But God promises salvation, resurrection, and an inheritance in his household forever. And there is nothing he cannot do. Let us pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his power. This is selections from Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. 
The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones, coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. The channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself torchless. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. And so when we pray under a sovereign God, how, how should we pray? Ultimately, we pray with thanksgiving. We worship him for first giving us the wisdom and revelation even see him at all. Every scrap of hope that we have is because he sought us first. And this hope that has been revealed, it is a hope of certainty with not a hint or a chance of a possibility of failure. And we thank God that it is a hope of glory. We do not have a hope that we will make it that we will get by or survive, but we have a hope in an inheritance in the very house of God. There is no pain or fear or loss on earth that can compare to that. And so we approach the throne in thanksgiving. And who, who alone can ensure these literally unbelievable promises? No one can be so powerful 
has to be certain to bring all of this about. And yet our God is. His power, demonstrated in the resurrection and which is proven every day by Jesus' seat on the throne, will make good on every promise. And so we thank Him. Praying in light of God's sovereignty is all about recognizing that God is the main character of your prayers. He is the one who saves. He is the one who gives wisdom. He is the one who gives revelation. He is the one who gives hope. He is the one who has power. When you pray to God for salvation, for healing, when you pray joyfully, when you pray in pain, when you pray for miracles or for small things, when you pray in fear or doubt, when you pray with a bad attitude, when you pray for things that you do not receive, whenever you pray, pray in a way that is not about you, but is about God, sovereign over all things. Every tiny moment is in his hands. Every prayer, no matter how eloquent or pathetic, is heard and known. And every promise that he makes is kept. And so no matter if you realize it or not, your prayers, they are about God. The best we can do is acknowledge that and thank him for it. I'm going to close us in prayer. And I, I must admit this is... This is a deeply challenging, personal, and intimate sermon to write and prayer to give. Uh, Many of you know that Amy and I recently lost our unborn child. And on Friday night this week, uh, my grandmother, after a 15-year decline into dementia, uh, died surrounded by her children and grandchildren. And honestly, I'm, I'm not doing well with it. I struggle to get by some days. And despair is at the door many times. And it is in times like these when God's sovereignty is most challenging and most needed. And so I pray this prayer corporately for all of us by the Lord's strength, not as something that I am feeling today, but as a cry to my Father and a reminder to myself and to you of what I know by God's grace is true. So Lord, may this be to your glory. Father, before I ever had my first thought, you had already chosen to save me. Thank you for your sovereignty. For my heart was blind and I never would have chosen you. All of us in this body together, all who are believers, owe everything to you. Bless you and praise you for your generous gifts to us. You have given us not just wisdom, but your spirit full of wisdom to change our hearts and minds forever. You have given us your word, which I pray by your power alone we have just heard preached. You have revealed yourself to us. You, God, over all things, beyond the comprehension of the wisest man, so holy that we could not even look at you have reached down to make yourself known. Thank you. Thank you for saving us who deserve nothing. And God, for that we praise you. We praise you for the hope to which you have called us. We thank you for assuring us of such glories and riches that we cannot fathom. We thank you for adopting us as your sons 
for choosing us to be a people for your own possession and to be your children. Like the greatest father that you are, give us comfort and cover us with a security that only a father can give. We take hope in our inheritance in your household, a great inheritance that we will certainly one day enjoy. And Father, we thank you that those whom we have lost that are also your children are enjoying their inheritance this very day. May we meet them soon. And lastly, oh God, we thank you for your power, for your greatness, for it is only because we serve an all-powerful God that we can have any surety at all. Our own power, our other idols, and all the powers of this world are useless against the most difficult days of life. But you, creator, covenanter, redeemer, conqueror, and king, you are all we need. You are all I need. For by your power are given all things. Into your sovereign hands we commit our lives. Your will be done for your purposes and for your glory. And may we see but a glimpse of it, this side of eternity. And may we always eagerly await that day when all your promises come due. Bless your name, praise and honor and glory forever are yours alone.